Well, hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pursue God podcast. I'm Brian, joined in the studio by Pastor Ross. Ross, today is Tuesday, which means it's time for another episode on systematic theology. We're in week 10 of our Sistheo series. And today, Ross, we're finally going to talk about the church. You know, we left off last time talking about sanctification. And before that, we talked about salvation. And now we're in this final, these final three topics in our Sistheo series. And we're talking now about the church because salvation and sanctification, most of what we talked about in the previous weeks was referring to individual salvation and sanctification. But yet the Bible says that it's not just individual, is it? Right. And in our culture, uh, it's easy to think of it just in simply individualistic terms. No, you know, I'm I'm saved. I'm right with Jesus. I'm regenerate, whatever, or I'm growing in my faith. But we really that when we become um, related to Jesus, we're not we're not just it's not just me and Jesus for eternity. We're incorporated into a body of all the other people who are in right relationship with Jesus. And and actually, we talked about in the sanctification process how one of the means that God uses is, is He uses His church. He uses the, the body of believers to work in our lives. And so it's really important to understand that, um, and it's just all throughout the whole Bible, Old and New Testament, that we become part of a people, we part, become part of a community of faith, and we call that the church. You know, culturally, you know, our culture, certainly in America today, is a little bit different than the, than the New Testament uh, the culture in the days of the New Testament 2,000 years ago, right? Because we have this idea of individualism in American culture. Maybe we should just mention that for a second to bring mm-hmm. some context to this. Yeah. That pr- probably the early church didn't, ha- didn't have some of these issues that we would struggle with when it comes to individualistic Christianity, right? It's almost like American Christians say, I could go to the mountain and have my relationship with God. I don't need the, tr- need the church. But that would have been a foreign concept 2,000 years yeah, ago. Yeah, totally. There was a, a deep, much deeper sense of a communal identity and community connection um, than, than we're really familiar with today. Okay, so let's start with a definition the, the New Testament Greek word for church is ekklesia. Now, this actually means the assembly of those who are called out, or this is the assembly of the called out ones. Yeah, and this, uh, this uh, echoes two things. It echoes the Old Testament, where the people of God in the Old Testament were called uh, the congregation or the assembly of God's people, and so it, it has echoes of that Old Testament reality where, where God's people were seen as a community. It also echoes the Greek context, because this word is a Greek word, and, and the word was used in secular Greek to talk about all of the citizens of a particular, of a particular city when they gathered together to make decisions about civic life and to, you know, kind of uh, debate policy and stuff like that. So you had the citizens of the city who would come together, um, you know, to, to be the citizens, to act as citizens. And so that backdrop um, informs the New Testament word, that this is like... It, so again, the idea of ecclesia means it's not just individuals, but there's a sense of together, that we're called together, we're called by the gospel into relationship with Jesus together, and, um, and we're called out of the world into a new identity. Now, when people today are listening to this and they hear the word church, they're thinking about their local church, right? They're thinking about First Baptist uh, or their non-denominational church that they attend. But when we use the word church, what are, what are we referring to before we get into all of these other details today? Yeah, that's a great question, because I think in our culture today, again, like you said, people think of a particular organizational institution, or they think of the building, because how often do we say, hey, we're going to go down to the church tonight? You know, we're thinking of we're going to drive to that particular location and enter that edifice. So really, but what this New Testament idea is all about, it's really talking about the people of God. The church encompasses all those who are in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And you know, that extends through all time. It extends through the whole world. And so there's this this is called the universal church. Now, it takes shape in visible local forms, but there is this overarching identity, this, this reality. The church is not limited to a particular organization or structure or place, but it, it really is this, again, the church's people. 
And, it, and it's all the people, whoever, forever, who are related to Jesus. So it's not just all the people today at this moment in time on the earth who are, who are followers of Jesus. It also extends to all of the people throughout time. So it's, it's not just around the world, but it's also throughout all of time, right? This is what we talk about when we talk about the invisible universal church. Right. And so when you add, when you add in the people uh, who have lived in the past but who are, no, who are no longer alive, sometimes theologians have talked about the church militant and the church triumphant. Right now we're the church militant because we're fighting it out. We're in, the, we're in this world. We're doing battle with the flesh, the devil, and the world. And, but someday when we go to be with Jesus, then we become the church triumphant because mm-hmm. we're experiencing um, the, the ultimate victory. Yeah. Now, at the end of the lesson today, Ross, I think it'll be helpful for us to save a few minutes to talk about how to pick a good church on this, yeah. on this point. Yeah. But we're going to save that for the very end because we've got a lot of information to cover. There's, there's so much to gather together when we talk about the church. But let's start with some biblical analogies. There are several analogies in the Bible um, that the authors use to talk about the church. And the first one is family. And I love, I love that this is the first on our list, right? Because the church really is a family. Mm-hmm. Again, that goes back to the relationships. The church is people. Now, the idea, so um, there's a number of passages in the Bible that talk about the household of God, the family of God. Um, so it, it really highlights the relational element of it. Now, every family has a, some kind of an organizational element, too. You have to uh, figure out who's going to do the chores or whatever. And so likewise, the church, even though it is primarily people and not institutional, there's still an organizational element that to get together and, and, and develop those relationships, we kind of have to... Uh, organize ourselves a little bit. All right, and the second analogy is a temple, which probably a lot of people today in modern America would say, that one doesn't really connect so much to me, but for the early church, this was a pretty popular analogy. Yeah, the temple was, of course, dominated uh, Jewish thought. The temple was such a a significant place uh, for them as it represented the presence of God among them, until, of course, in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and torn down. But there's a, several passages, a couple passages in particular that talk about how Christians are the building blocks of the temple. Like 1 Peter chapter 2 talks about uh, Christians as living stones being built into this temple. Ephesians 2 uh, takes the same idea and explains that the temple, that the church is now the dwelling place of God on earth, that, that God lives among us, in and among Christians. <clears throat> and so the, the, church, uh, the church is built on the cornerstone of Jesus himself. Um, so it's this idea that of our interconnectedness um, with each other. Now, a third analogy that we see in the New Testament is that the church is referred to as a body, like, like our physical bodies, you know, so there's a head, there are hands, there are feet, you know, mm-hmm. and we see this in a couple of places in Scripture, and again, this is really a helpful analogy to understand how we should all fit into the church. Yeah, again, um, this is why sometimes you'll hear the phrase, the church, the church is called the body of Christ. That's another term for the universal church. In this case, because he is the head. There's no other head except him, and he directs all the parts, the different parts of this living organism. So again, this is looking at the church from more of a non-institutional kind of approach. There's this living organism, and all these different parts are being orchestrated by Jesus in order to oversee the growth of the whole body. The fourth analogy is very personal, because Jesus calls the church his bride, which I think, by the way, this is why I always encourage people when they, when they badmouth the church, I would be really careful, because you're badmouthing the bride of Christ. Now, not to say the church is perfect, just like our brides aren't perfect, Ross. I hope they're not listening. But if you <laughs> badmouth my, my bride, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a problem with that, right? And so the church is the bride of Christ. Right. This shows, uh, this is a great point because this really shows, and Ephesians 5 particularly shows how much Jesus has invested in and how he cares about. And he has, a, he has this beautiful uh, vision for what the church can become, and he's working on that, um, just like a husband would encourage his wife to become everything that she could be. Okay, and then the final analogy is a flock, that Jesus refers to the church as the flock, right? Which is a, a little bit 
it's it, it says a lot of stuff, but one of the things it says is that sheep were dumb, and so <laughs> yeah, and that yeah. I think that really fits as well. But that that's not how Jesus meant it, right? Right. He he might have a little bit, but he he meant it in terms of the the idea is is it suggests that that. Uh, that a sheep are vulnerable, and I think that's part of it because it's, this in- includes concern and protection and care and provision. Um, and it's interesting because in a couple places, uh, Jesus, uh, the Bible points out that Jesus has appointed human leaders to be shepherds under him to shepherd the flock. And so, because of, because it's vulnerable and needy and, and and needs care and protection, Jesus has appointed uh, human leaders to. Uh, steward his flock for him. Okay, so Ross, now let's. There's a couple of kind of broader concepts in the Bible. I think it's important for Christians to understand how these concepts relate to the church. One is is Israel from the Old Testament. The other one is the kingdom. Let's start with Israel. You know, the 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 word church isn't used in the in the Old Testament anywhere. The church is is something that really Jesus started talking a little bit about, and then we see the church is born in the book of Acts. How does that relate to the Old Testament concept of Israel and the people of God? Yeah, now, I'll say we don't have time to really dig in very deeply on this, because it's a complicated issue that a lot of people have debated about for, for decades. But prior to the church, Israel was the people of God. That's quite clear. God had had raised up Israel to belong to him, to be his people, to have a relationship with him. And now we've got the church, and Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. So what's the relationship between the two? The question that people ask, is there one people of God, or is there are there two peoples of God, the church and Israel, or or just what how how do they relate to each other? So which one's right, Ross? Well, right. This is the big debate. This is, is the debate. Yeah. And when you read the New Testament, you see this. Paul talks about he has. A, Paul, of course, is Jewish. Uh, the early disciples were all Jewish, and so they. I think they were probably trying to figure this out a little bit too. Like, how mm-hmm. does this relate to the Old Testament people of God? In fact, in the very early days of the church, the first few chapters of Acts, it's only the Jewish people. Jesus himself only went to the Jewish people, right? right? And then all of a sudden, and this was a real, this is what <clears throat> I think blew everybody's minds, all of a sudden they realized, the early disciples, Peter and, and Paul, realized in Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 10, that this message was for more than than Jews, right? So Christianity at first was viewed as as a Jewish thing, right. and then they realized, wait, this isn't just for Jews, and of course that's when Christianity exploded. Yeah, and Paul says, for example, in Ephesians chapter 3, he calls it a mystery. Now there's something that was hidden before but revealed uh, now that God was going to include the Gentiles in salvation. And so the question is like, okay, so thinking about God's plan and God's program for his people... Does he, does he have one people, one plan, or are there two peoples and two plans? And different groups over historically have said, well, God has a plan for national Israel in the future, and there's prophecies in the Old Testament that, uh, that still only apply to Israel, the nation of Israel, and so there's going to be a future time that God brings them back or whatever. And then the others say, well, no, it's more like um, the church is sort of replaces Israel or supersedes Israel in um, and all the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament ultimately apply to the church um, that that were you know not to Israel anymore but to kind of this new Israel and th- those are the two polar sides of the of the debate and so if people want to learn more about this right because like you said we're not going to really dive into the debate I I have some personal thoughts on that debate I as a Gentile <laughs> when I read stuff I I lean towards saying I think. The, I think Israel now is is included in the church. So the mm-hmm. church, my stance is the church is these promises are all about the church and and Israel is a part of that. But some people listening might say I totally disagree with that, mm-hmm. and I think Israel has there's a special place for Israel still in human history and and even in in salvation history. Yeah. So I mean, I think what you what you see is it's one of the things to keep in mind is that the New Testament talks about Israel. Um, with some fluidity, um, and then because Paul describes this kind of inner or spiritual Israel or spiritual Jewishness that he says doesn't apply to every ethnic Jew. Romans chapter 2 talks about how, uh, and also Romans 9, how not all Israel is Israel, in a sense. And so, um, 
you know, he says there's neither Jew nor Greek anymore, Jew nor Gentile anymore, but all who follow Christ are children of Abraham in Galatians chapter 3. So, um, so there is this new thing going on, that there's this, this muddying of the waters maybe, or I think the way I like to think about it is that the church doesn't replace Israel, but the church expands Israel. The church carries, in other words, this, this first people of God then is expanded, enriched, and, and modified by this new people of God. And there's really only then one people of God, and includes all everybody who is in right relationship with Jesus, uh, no matter whether they uh, followed him in anticipation of the coming Messiah, or they followed him you know, after he came and died on the cross for us. Okay, so if, if the concept of Israel isn't confusing enough, why don't we add to it this other concept that... Jesus talked a lot about in the Gospels, he talked a lot about the kingdom, that he has come to announce the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. And so the question people might have is, is he, ta- is he talking about the church there when he uses the word kingdom? What, what's, what's going on in those words? Yeah, those that's, a, that, that's a, it's a question that, again, there's a lot of uh, angles to look at this from, but it, it's important just to at least be aware of the question. What's the relationship between the kingdom of God and the church? Because, you know, the kingdom of God idea goes back to the Old Testament, and this idea of God had an earthly, an earthly kingdom, Israel, and an earthly king, King David, and, and all of his descendants that looked forward to the coming of Christ. Then Jesus comes and says, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. And I, and I wonder if those early Jews who were listening to that probably thought that he was going to restore the physical kingdom of Israel again. Um, and that, that relates to the other question that we just talked about. What, will there be a physical kingdom of Israel restored uh, in the future? But the, the point is that, that this whole idea of kingdom then in the New Testament really expands beyond just a, a physical geographical realm um, in the Middle East somewhere. But, but it becomes then this dynamic reign of God, and the purpose of his reign is to bring people to salvation. And so Jesus comes, he's the king, he's the coming king. It, the kingdom is inaugurated in his appearance, and then, and then there, but there's certain aspects of the kingdom that won't be completed or fulfilled until Jesus comes back again. So we're living in this now and not yet tension uh, with the kingdom. But what about the church? Well, I, the way I would understand it, try to simplify it, is that the church is the community of of humans who have surrendered to the rule of Jesus king of Jesus kingship so the the church is not the kingdom but the church is kind of subsumed under the kingdom the church right now is the expression of the kingdom it, it, the kingdom is bigger than the church eventually we'll see when it gets uh, fulfilled in in the end of a, the age but the the church expresses and manifest the kingdom here and now, makes it visible in the world. It's, you might say, the instrument of the kingdom for this time. Now, we'll talk more about the end times in our final episode in this series in a couple of weeks, but that leads us, Ross, to talk about the church's purpose then. So the church, and again, when when we say that, I want people to think about their local church Mm -hmm. in part, because of course, that's the most immediate expression of that. That's the most visible expression of that. So this is in part going to help us to start answering the question, how do I pick a good church? Right. A little bit. Yeah. The church exists for a few purposes, right? It it exists to bring glory to God. Ultimately. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, that's, Mm -hmm. if you, if you put it in a in a mission statement, you want to bring glory to God, but that can, is expressed in a few different things, right? This is the church's purpose. First of all, the church exists to worship God. Now, when we use that word today, we're not just talking about singing songs, are we? Right. It's, it's a bigger picture of what worship is all about. Worship giving uh, God his due, uh, responding to the greatness of God as it's revealed to us. How do we respond? It might be a number of things. It might be that we respond with confession and repentance. That'd be worship. As, as well as adoration and praise, which we're used to. That'd be worship. When we hear the Word of God preached, we're, we're in worship because we're, God is revealing himself to us at that moment. And so, so there's a lot of things that encompass worship. And it's the church's purpose, that the church is on earth to, to express to God then that, that glory, that adoration, that surrender, and, and all the other things that say, hey, we're in right relationship with God, and we're, and we're going to express that to Him. 
Now, when it comes to m- the music side of worship, Ross, is there is there a biblical way to do that? Is there a right way to do that? Because some churches use instruments, some churches don't. Some churches have drums and electric guitars and smoke, and some churches don't. Some churches are, you know, singing hymns, and th- that's the right way to do it. And all this, all this newfangled music isn't isn't really what God wants. Is there? You want to answer that? Just yeah, real quick? you know, uh, there's. I think um, th- I think the Bible gives us a lot of examples, but it doesn't say you know do it like this. So there's two ways to look at how the Bible talks about worship, and not only worship, but a lot of other things as well. The question is, is it forbidden, or is it permitted? And so there's certain things the Bible forbids us to do, so we don't do them. And there's certain things that the Bible doesn't... It, some, some people say, if the Bible doesn't give us the example of it, then we don't do it. Um, you know, and other people say, if the Bible doesn't forbid it, then we can do it. Okay, so um, we see, look, we go around the world and we see that worship is... And through history, the worship, how worship styles are very culturally derived. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, America, uh, English and American missionaries in the 1800s would go to Africa and Asia and so forth and try to introduce hymns. Well, hymns weren't, cul- weren't culturally um, known in those cultures. They're, they're a product of Western European civilization. And so there is a little bit of culture-bound thinking about worship. And so I think today um, we look at the, what's the heart of it, what's the purpose of it, and then, and then we have freedom to use a number of different cultural styles. So, for example, the people who just want only hymns, why would we make normative and regulative the cultural style of, say, um, Western Europe and America between the 17 and 1800s? Why would that become Mm -hmm. the norm, the standard? Why not go back to the medieval ages and say, no, we need more Gregorian chants, you know? So it becomes a matter of culture and preference. But what about the person who says, I don't even like singing? Do we need? Do we need to have? Can I find a church where there's no singing? Right. <laughs> That's pretty good. No. The answer is no. Yeah. Because yeah, because the, because the yeah. people of God have always expressed, in part, have expressed their worship. Again, it's not just about singing, but they have through psalms and songs. Yeah, and that's uh, that's pretty clear all throughout Scripture, Old and New Testament, different cultural settings, and it's even in the culture of heaven. When we see this glimpse in Revelation of heaven, we see that that singing is part of heaven. So so deal with it, dude. If you yeah, don't like to if, sing... Then don't go to heaven, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, I would say to guys, I would say, look, it's okay. Maybe you don't have a good voice. That's why the Bible says make a joyful noise. Yeah. <laughs> right? It doesn't have to be good. But but really try to engage. There's something about music right. that that engages something more than just our mind. But for but yeah. maybe for people out there who don't, they don't particularly like music, is focus on the words and think mm-hmm. of it, think of it like a poem. And, and and see if you can't express that to God in maybe a little bit of a non not a melodic way, um, right? It doesn't have to be yeah. It doesn't have to be great, but God created music and I think created it for the purpose of worship. Yeah, and and it because of that it works in other areas of life too because it has this way of speaking to the human heart. Well, I derail this a little bit there. Okay, <laughs> so worship is the church's first purpose or is one purpose. The second purpose of the church is edification, this idea that the church exists to edify the church, the rest of the, Mm -hmm. the, to go back to this analogy of the body of Christ. Yeah, this kind of takes us back to the last topic where we talked about how God uses the church to to grow and sanctify believers. And so the word edification, all right, it sounds like the English word edifice, right? That's because it means to build up. So the purpose of the church is to build up the people of God who are part of the church, so that we, we live in in, in uh, mutual interdependence, members of the faith community are ministering to each other physically, spiritually. We bearing bearing one another's burdens, you know, helping each other grow in their faith and grow closer to Jesus. And so that the church is a primary vehicle. That's why we exist. If we're not building up believers, then um, then the church isn't really doing what God called it to do. Okay, but then some people then would say, that's right, that's what the church exists for, just those two things, to worship mm-hmm. and to edify believers. So in other words, the church is for God, which is true, and the church is for other Christians, but then I think that misses this third thing, this third purpose. The, the church's purpose is, let's just call it outreach. It's to make disciples. It's to invite people on the outside in 
And this is where some more debates come mm-hmm. when when it comes to the local church. Some local churches do outreach really, really well, and some local churches don't do it at all. Some local churches think of it like a cul-de-sac, and we're just gonna we're gonna circle the wagons and we're gonna protect. We're going to protect everyone from the outside world, and I, which I can right. understand. I totally understand right. that. So, so w- what what do we mean by outreach, and what should that look like in the local church? Yeah, so this is the... Uh, it's interesting, because the church is one of the few institutions that exists in, the, in our culture at all that exists for the people who are not its members. You know, so we, we do exist for the members. I don't mean formal members, but I mean the people who are, who are in, incorporated into the body of Christ. But the church also exists for the world. It exists to reveal God in the world. The church is, uh, exists to uh, fulfill God's purposes in the world, and part of that, Jesus told us, go make disciples. Uh, Jesus kept saying it over and over again, you know, go and, and take this message uh, to the whole world. Be, you'll be my witnesses um, everywhere around. And he gave us this ministry of reconciliation. And uh, on top of that, there's not just the verbal part, but there's the there, there's this element where, where Jesus says, look, what, it, your good deeds will cause people to look at the Father and reflect and, and, and see and give praise to him. So, so it's, it's our verbal witness coupled with our serving the world that um, where, it's, where, it's the way that God has chosen primarily to make himself known um, to, the, to the world around, to make himself known to people who are far from him. Okay, so on a practical level then, Ross, does that mean, when we say outreach, does that mean on Sunday morning, when we're doing church together on Sunday morning, it's all, it's all about the Christian, and then the rest of the week is our opportunity to go outside the church walls and do evangelism and discipleship, but it's not, we don't, we don't mix the two on Sunday morning, right? This is where some of the debate comes in, and this is where pre- maybe preference is, is introduced a little bit. We, you know, we, back in the 80s and 90s, we, we used the term seeker-sensitive church model, a church model that really was thinking about the outsider being there on a Sunday morning. Is there a biblical way to think about that? Well, uh, that's a great question, because I'm not sure that what we do on Sundays in American culture, by and large, you know, is necessarily completely biblical in the first place. And there's a lot of cultural elements involved in that. In the, you know, even to begin with, um, if you look at the New Testament, they they met in houses, you know. So right. Um, so there is some translation across culture that takes place. Now the the question is so the question is who is the Sunday morning worship meeting for? Is it just for the believers? Is it primarily for guests, or is it for both? And, um, you know, there's, if you look at 1 Corinthians 14, you see that Paul's instructions to the gathered church on how they do their, their stuff that when they're together, that he assumes they're going to take, their, or he, in fact, he, he actually instructs them to take into account how the impact of what they do on the outsider. He says, if you do certain things, then people are going to just not understand that. People who are outsiders are going to totally not understand what you're doing, and so you ought to do it in an orderly way, and so forth. And so he opens the door for us to really think about uh, the really the the possibility and really the likelihood of having um, non Christians in the gathering. And so that's, I think, an ideal thing. Um, but yeah, for sure, we should still go out into the world around us. That's why people would come. That people would come because they have relationships with Christians, mm-hmm. and so they want to say, well, I'm curious about what you guys are doing and what it's all about. Yeah, and that's how we view it in our church, uh, is we, we, we talk about church as a gateway for non-believers. Now, again, this isn't our only hope, is that, mm-hmm. that our, our church members would invite their friends to church, and then their job is done. That certainly isn't yeah. what discipleship is. We believe it's so much more than that, but we have recognized, at least at this moment in time, in our culture, uh, in the state that we live in, that one of the most um, effective ways to reach your friends is to invite them to check out your community of faith. Right. And so we do try to walk that that line where we're we're preaching the word. We're not just it's you know we're not just do, playing secular music and doing doing everything just to appeal to the outsider, but where we do church on Sunday morning with the outsider in mind. Right. We want to try to eliminate cringe moments. We want to always be 
be cognizant of the fact that 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 the outsiders are watching and we're inviting them into the community but they're getting they're getting to see what we do as a community right. and we've noticed over the last couple decades that that really impacts outsiders that they're like I, they're like I want to be a part of this yeah there's something that happens in their life now now we're we're not soft pedaling anything we're not that's no bait and switch right. to say that oh you know you you'll get the real truth later on um, but we will think carefully about how we communicate certain mm-hmm. things. We do talk about sin, but how do we talk about sin? We try to talk about it in categories that would make sense to the secular mind right. or to the or to the, some other religious system. Yeah, maybe this is a good time, Ross, mm-hmm. to talk. Uh, just answer the question mm-hmm. I, I said we would answer here at the beginning. What if someone's listening to this and they're maybe they're struggling just on a local level with their church, and they're not sure if their church is the right fit for them. They've got some issues. And, you know, as pastors, we would say to people, you should really be prayerful about that. You shouldn't take lightly just jumping around from church to church. I don't think that's what God wants. I don't think that honors God. But it is important to ask the question, am I going to a church that, that I believe is biblical, that's a healthy church? What are a few things that you would put on that list for people that some kind of non-negotiables? There's a lot of a lot of gray area, but what are the things that people should definitely be checking off at their church? Yeah, that's a great question because really, realistically, in American culture, a lot of people are in church um, as consumers. We call them consumer Christians. They're there to see what can this church provide for me, what can they do for me, and so I mean. You do want to have you want to ask some great questions. Is this does the church of teaching the Bible? Is it based on Scripture? Is Jesus exalted there? You know, those are fundamental to what even the meaning of the church is. If he's the if Jesus is the chief cornerstone and he's the head of the church, then you know is that is that apparent in in what this church does? Is it built around a human head or is it built around Jesus as the head? And so, and, and then are they teaching in, in, in ways that, are, that reflect that identity? Are they faithful in the things that they teach and how they do things? But, but beyond that, you know, there's, it's also important um, to think about the nature of the church as human relationships. It's people. So is it the kind of situation where I just walk in um, and have an hour of, you know, sort of spiritual entertainment and then leave? Or am I going to have opportunity to be connected with other people in meaningful relationships? Am I going to be able to be in a, in a group where we, we, we encourage each other? Can I get a mentor there? Um, can I you know, get that kind of help to help me grow in my faith? And is this a church that cares about lost people? Mm-hmm. Is this a church that's engaging the community and the world around, or is it just a little bubble? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think those are great. Those are three things I would say. Yeah, is it... Is it- Biblical and Christ-centered would be one. Is it? Do they do healthy relationships here? Because that's up to the person who's coming too. You can. You have to make a choice. Yeah. But but are there opportunities? Are there opportunities? And 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 is there a healthy relational culture at the church, or are they all just backbiting and gossipy and yeah. right that sort of thing? And and again, I I I think this is there's a there's a lot of gray area when it comes to this kind of stuff, but. But you can a lot of times you can sense once you start getting connected like this is this is a healthy place relationally. Mm-hmm. People aren't talking about people behind their backs, talking about pastors behind backs. There's just real love here. People love each other. Yeah, yeah. people love each yeah. other here, and you and you should want to be a part of that, be influencing that. So yeah. number one, truth. Number two, love, and then number three, mission. Is a, yeah. are they? And that's the one that I think most people miss because most of us want to be consumers. We just want a place we can come and belong. But it's more than about belonging. Like we're saying, the purpose of the church is to go make disciples. So are we? Uh, is this church serious about it? And am I serious about it? Right. Am I going to be a part of the solution that I want to find out how I can help make disciples in the context of the church? I would say those are three main things. I would yeah, look th- for. those are huge. Those are, and beyond that, a lot of other things are matters of preference and culture and. Yeah. Um, you know, you could, and, and the Bible's not as clear about many of the other issues that we, we kind of maybe make more important than they really are. Okay, and one of those, let's get mm-hmm. to this next topic, one of those areas of preference is church governance, right? So how is there a biblical way for a church to be governed? This is a really good question for people, uh, because there are a few options out mm-hmm. there. Uh, historically, 
But Ross, I guess the question is, is one of these options more biblical than the other one? Yeah, that you know, people are going to answer that in different ways, which probably means that, no, the answer is maybe not. But I think what is biblically based and what really is foundational scripturally is that uh, the Bible talks often about the role of key leaders in the life of the Church. Um, and there are three terms the Bible uses interchangeably, pastor, elder, and shepherd. I mean, pastor is shepherd, but elder, overseer, and pastor or shepherd. Mm-hmm. Um, those three terms are not three different offices. There's a number of places where they're used interchangeably, so you see talking about one thing. Now, what shape that ministry of that leader takes is going to can be... Uh, there's a lot of different ways that the role of those shepherd, elder, um, overseers can... Um, manifest in the local church. And so I think the, the structure is not necessarily biblical, but the office of the role is very important biblically. Okay, so there are three church governance approaches, and I guess you could say there's probably hybrids of all three. Yeah. But there are three, and, and let me list them out, Ross, and then maybe you can explain each one of them. The first is Episcopal, the second is Presbyterian, and the third is Congregational. And when I say that, it's not—don't go looking at your church name to see if it has one of those, right? I go to an Episcopal church, or I go to a Presbyterian church, or I go to— there are churches that actually go by the denominations that go by those names, but but we're talking about it in a broader sense, Episcopal, yeah. Presbyterian, or Congregational. And they, they go by those names because, historically— their form of government was one of the determining factors about who they were. And so you're not going to find an Episcopal church that's not Episcopal in its governance or a Presbyterian church, but there might, but they're not limited to those denominational right, titles. Right? right. If you go to a non-denominational church, that's not a fourth type, really. Right, right. It it's probably is going to fall into one of these yeah, categories. Yeah, definitely, yeah. Right. So yeah. let's talk about these categories. Okay, Episcopal church, the authority resides in it's a, it's a hierarchical, top-down uh, org chart. So the top is the archbishop, and maybe under him there's a bishop, and then under him there's a local, um, there's a local pastors. And so basically the, the, the pastor's overseeing the church, the bishop is overseeing a number of pastors, the archbishop is overseeing a number of bishops. That's the kind of approach. Even though it, your church might not use those words. Right, exactly. Bishop, it yeah. might be... Might, might use different terms like pastor or right. senior pastor or things like that, but that would be an Episcopalian-type yeah. Or term. it might use a term like district superintendent <laughs> right. or regional superintendent or something like that. But the question is, who has authority? In all of these, que- in all of these structure, the question is, who has authority, um, and what shape does that take? So in the Episcopal, the Episcopal model, authority is top-down and hierarchical, and you answer to someone above you mm-hmm. in, the, in the org chart. Okay, so that's the first one. The second one is Presbyterian, and that, again, is referring to another word that we have in the New Testament that is talking about an elder, which is different than a bishop when we're thinking yeah, about bishop it bishop is the word overseer, and, uh, and episkopos in Greek, that's why it's called episcopal, mm-hmm. and then presbyteros in Greek is the elder, which is why it's called presbyterian, it's just a transliteration of the Greek. But this is uh, the emphasis is on a group of elders. So each local church is governed by the pastor and recognizing that there's other elders too who are not necessarily the pastor. And so there's a, a group like a board they call it the session often. That and then then there's an over in a region of churches there's another kind of board or council um, called the presbytery, and they and that rep- and that has a couple of representatives from every local church, but it has some authority over those local churches. And as you go up the org chart, instead of there being an archbishop or some individual at the top, there's another council that's at the top that's made of representatives of the regional groups. And so it's so there is still a hierarchy, but the hierarchy is more representative. And it involves, you know, uh, people from each of the lower levels sitting on the higher levels. Okay, so that's pres- that's a Presbyterian style of govern of church governance. And then the third option is a congregational style of church governance. And what do what do we mean by that? Obviously, we know what a congregation is. So, what authority does the congregation have in that structure? Yeah, they have all the authority. And so, again, the question is is a th- who has the authority? And so, in congregational type of church government, the local 
members will actually vote on. It's kind of a democratic approach. The members will vote on things. So the members are the ones who are going to decide um, on the key issues. So here's a, an example. Who decides who's the pastor going to be? In Episcopal Church, that pastor is going to be appointed by the bishop or the, or the tier above. In the Presbyterian model, that pastor might be called by the congregation jointly with the next higher level up. And in the congregational model, the members of the congregation will vote to say who their pastor is going to be. So there's, the thing about congregational government is there's no authority outside of the congregation that has any say in the life of the congregation. It's all localized. Okay, so then again, the natural question, Ross, is what, now that we know these three options, these three approaches to church governance, well, well which, which one was the early church? Do we have any clues about the early church that we read about in the book of Acts that would tell us maybe how, you know, how the early church was run? Yeah, the challenging thing is we see all of them. We see all of these things reflected in different ways. If we see the, uh, the Apostle Paul writes to Titus in Titus chapter 1, and he tells him to appoint... Um, pastors and leaders and overseers in all the churches. Mm-hmm. Well, that seems feels like a very Episcopal kind mm-hmm. of approach. Mm-hmm. The, the local churches didn't vote on who their overseers were going to be. They're appointed by Titus, who is authorized by Paul. So that feels very Episcopal. Okay, so that's it. So Episcopal <laughs> is the answer, right? Is that yeah, what you're saying? exactly. No. And you have other examples, like in Acts chapter 15, where the church gets together to resolve an issue about what's the role of the Gentiles now that are starting to come to faith. How do we treat them? You know, because the, like, as you pointed out earlier, the church was largely Jewish at the time. So there you have different things where the leaders of the Jerusalem church called this council, but they didn't make the decision. They didn't make a final definitive say, this is what we decided. You know, um, James, the leader of that, he said, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. They did it collaboratively. So that, that feels more. Uh, congregational, almost, in terms of how those decisions were made. Or, or at least Presbyterian. At least Presbyterian, right? yeah. that, that it, it seems like there's a council there of leaders, mm-hmm. and or maybe you could say it was more than just a council, it was or maybe it was maybe the it congregation. Was more than, maybe more yeah. than just the leaders, yeah. So the point is that there are pros and cons to all of these, but the Bible doesn't mandate um, any particular gover- governing structure but what it does say is that leadership is important. Leadership really matters, and the right kind of leaders, and that, that's the key. Um, and, and I think that the structure can take shape and take different forms in different cultural circumstances. All right, let's talk about one more thing, Ross. And, and again, this is one that could bring up a little controversy. So when you're out there, when you're listening to this and, and you're thinking about your own church, think about how your church does ordinances. Mm-hmm. And what do, we, what do we mean when we use the term ordinance? Because some people use the term sacrament. Mm-hmm. And what's the difference, and why do we use the term ordinance? Well, the ordinances, they're called that because they were ordained by Jesus. Jesus said, do this. And he, the two of them in particular that Jesus said to do are baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, I've, I've shied away from the word sacraments because it... In the Roman Catholic system, these are called sacraments, and they seem to have some kind of saving significance. And we, we said, no, these don't, these don't save you. They re- remind you of your salvation. Although there's other, other Protestants who sometimes use the word sacraments because the word sacramentum in Latin just means a, a, like a, a mystery revealed. And so they're saying, well, th- there's, cer- there's a certain mystery to these things, and there's a certain uh, presence of God and, and some kind of a, uh, something bigger than just a memorial rite. It takes place, so some people like the word sacraments, but to me it has some baggage that I don't think is helpful. Okay, so in most Christian churches, when they talk about ordinances, they're talking about just these two. So we're going to mm-hmm. dive into those here just real quickly as we close out this episode, but before we do that, are there, do some churches think that there's more than two ordinances? Yeah, they're pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Um, some people think that foot washing is an ordinance, mm. Because Jesus, on the Last Supper, he took the bowl, he washed, and he says, you know, he said, you should do this for each other. And so they feel like that he commanded something there, whereas I would say that what he commanded was to serve each other, not necessarily to wash each other's feet in a particular way. Yeah, I'm glad we don't do that at our church, Ross. Yeah, that could be weird. My feet are really not, you don't want to wash my feet. That would be very much a humbling, serving thing for you. Mm -hmm. 
what what about the Catholic Church? How does the Catholic Church view what they would call sacraments? Do they add add yeah, to they these have a, two? The marriage they include marriage. Yeah. They include um, you know actually ordination into clerk into a, a, the priesthood. They include um, the last rites. It's called extreme unction. So they have actually seven mm-hmm. of these in the in the Catholic Church. But in a typical evangelical Protestant evangelical church, typically you're going to have these two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. So let's talk about those two things. Let's let's start with baptism. Is there a you know some churches do infant baptism, mm-hmm. some churches do adult baptism, right? So infant baptism, theologians call it pedo baptism. And um, adult baptism or believer's baptism is called credo baptism because it's I believe is the word credo. Well, so let's separate the Roman Catholics for a minute because they approach infant baptism differently from any of the Protestant Christian churches that, that do pedo baptism. It's not, again, it's not as seen as a saving ordinance. Right. So pedo baptists. Um, now I say this, I'm a credo baptist, so mm-hmm. I hope I've got the pedo baptist argument make a fair argument for their point of view. But they see it as um, parallel to circumcision in the Old Testament, and in fact as the kind of fulfillment of the idea of circumcision, the true circumcision. So circumcision in the Old Testament was a ritual that God gave to Abraham and all the Jews following that says this, this boy is circumcised at eight, at eight days old as a sign that they're part of the covenant community and as a sign that they are now come under the promises of God. Um, so pedo-baptists practice baptism of infants in that same kind of um, idea, that they say that this is a sign that this, that this child is now incorporated into the faith community and um, with the promise that they will come to the personal experience of that faith at some point in the future, based on their own decision. And when they do, Ross, in those churches, do they get baptized again as an adult? No, they say they go back and own the baptism that was made for them as an infant. Okay, so that's pedo-baptism. And then the other, the other one, which is, the, the, which is what we practice at our church, mm-hmm. Ross, is credo-baptism, which is adult baptism or believer's baptism. It's when, you, when you're old enough to make a decision. And by the way, it's not an adult necessarily. You right. could be eight or nine or ten. Right. But when you're old enough to own your own faith, that's when you should get baptized. What, what, why would we argue for that stance? Well, it seems to be this typical um, pattern in the New Testament where people believed and then they were baptized. They believed and then they were baptized over and over again. And the idea is that you know, baptism doesn't really replace circumcision. What replaces circumcision is regeneration, and then and so that I become born again. So I'm circumcised in my heart by an act of the Holy Spirit that makes me part of God's people, and baptism is simply the outward expression or the token of that. And all the symbolism of baptism, that it talks about how baptism represents the dying of our old life in Romans chapter 6, we're raised to a new life. Well, that implies that the person being baptized has experienced, actually, this new life. Okay, so that's, that's baptism. And again, we're, we're just trying to help people understand in the context of the Church that that's one of the, uh, one of the two ordinances that, that Jesus commanded for us to be obedient to. Whether you do it with infants or with adults, it's, you do it because Jesus said to do it. Now, that's kind of a one-time thing. The, the other ordinance that we practice that Jesus commanded or, or ordained for us to practice is the Lord's Supper or communion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Jesus said, you know, the night that before he was crucified, he gathered his disciples in the upper room, and he broke bread with them, and he passed around the bread, he passed around the cup, and he said, uh, you know, this symbolizes my body, my blood spilled for you. Do this, he says, in remembrance of me. So there's, the, there's where the command came from. And so the church has been doing it in remembrance of him uh, ever since. Now, some churches feel pretty strongly that they should do it every single week, because Jesus said, whenever you gather together. Mm-hmm. So they take that literally. Some churches do it uh, less frequently. In our particular church, we do it once a month. Is there a biblical way to view that? There is not. Um, I think that the only biblical principle there is that, uh, that in 1 Corinthians 11, it talks about 
um, have coming to it with the right heart, the right attitude, um, doing it, you know, the functions of it, remembering Jesus, proclaiming his death till he comes again, um, reminding of ourselves of our standing because of what he's done for us. So I think, you know, some churches only do it once or twice a year. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a preference thing, but it mm-hmm. seems to me like, well, that's, that's kind of giving short shrift to the purpose of communion. Yeah, I just visited a church recently that, that I've never seen a church do it like this before, and I haven't even had time to process it, but they, they have communion tables set up every Sunday, that, and they tell people, if you would like to take communion, it's there. So they don't do it congregationally. Mm-hmm. You know, in our church, we do it We do it as a congregation. I used to love, before COVID, I used to love we would let people come forward and dip, dip the wafer into the cup, and it was more of a communal thing. We encouraged families to do it, to mm-hmm. bring it back to their... So we, we, we've always done it as, a, as part of the community, right? This is, we, view, we have viewed this as a community function, and this church... Um, does it? It's a little bit more individual. Mm-hmm. It's a little yeah. bit. This is this is between you and God. Go ahead and do it. And I know some churches encourage their small groups to take communion together, right? right. Or to do it, yeah, in other settings besides the Sunday gathering. Yeah. yeah. Well, wh- whichever way you do it, I think the important thing is that it's part of what Jesus told us to do, and as followers of Jesus, because that's what the church is. The church is the community of followers of Jesus. We do what He says. Mm-hmm. And so there's some there's some uh, grace in maybe how to do some of this, but clearly it's all about Jesus, and that's the church. Ross, so this is the first of our final three topics, and we're, we've kind of bunched these together uh, under under a heading that's about the church and the end times. So so next week we're going to be talking a little bit about death, and then. How are we going to end this entire uh, systematic theology? Track? Yeah, we're going to end w- by looking at the end. You know, what happens at the end of history and what, where God's uh, plan goes forward. So we're ta- going to talk next week about what we call personal eschatology, what happens to me individually in the future, and then general eschatology is the final one, what happens to the whole world in the future. So join us next time. Remember, if you want to use any of these resources with your family or your small group or your mentor, you can find it all online at pursuegod.org forward slash sistheo, and we'll see you next week.